welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyce. Fair Folk is a podcast devoted to bringing folk tradition to life. In this episode, I'm with author Nigel Pennock in Cambridge, England. Our conversation took place in the autumn of 2018. Nigel Pennock is the author of over 50 books on topics ranging from paganism and folk magic to geomancy, a divination system based on patterns observed in random assemblages. Some of his popular titles include The Pagan Book of Days, Celtic Sacred Landscapes, The Toad Man, and Eldritch World. Nigel Pennock's worldview is permeated by the otherworldly. His work, if I can sum it up, is to re-enchant our lives and the natural landscape, wherever we encounter it. He takes every opportunity to hold the veil between this world and the other up to the light, exposing the many places where it thins to transparency. He also plays traditional and experimental music, some of which you will hear in this episode. I must say that spending time with Nigel Pennock is an eldritch experience in itself, a meeting that I expected would take an hour became half a day exploring the oldest and most storied places in Cambridge. Under his gaze, a grey heron perched above the Cam River became an emblem of watchfulness. A run-in with a friendly duck suddenly became an otherworldly encounter. I asked him about his concept of the Eldritch and of what he calls the Elder Faith, as well as the secretive rural fraternity called the Toadmen. Because of his many decades studying witchcraft and the occult, he shared much more than that, offering anecdotes about communication with animals, about real magic, and about the rarely mentioned consequences of engagement with the supernatural. He spoke often about ostenta, signs or tokens of importance or things to come, which in his experience are not relegated to some mythical past, but are everywhere and ever available to our eyes and spirits. His take on the phenomenology of daily life reminded me of the words of Irish writer George William Russell. I knew that the golden age was all about me, he wrote, and it was we who had been blind to it, but that it had never passed away from the world. Or in other words, the golden age is all around us. Here is my conversation with Nigel Pennock. I've recently been reading your book, Eldritch World. Would you please for me define what you mean by the term Eldritch World? Eldritch. Eldritch means otherworldly existence, which nevertheless is in this world. The word Eldritch was used by Hollinshead in his chronicle to describe the weird sisters uh, in his account of Macbeth, which Shakespeare later used as he transformed them into the three witches, where the illustration shows the Eldritch sisters as beautiful, richly dressed ladies. Um, and it is something that appears out of, seemingly out of nowhere and, and will give you something or you'll go into a place that will have those powers and you will be touched by them. Amazing. So where are some kinds of places that you might encounter the Eldritch then? 
Well, um, you can encounter the eldritch in natural places. They're all somewhat natural places. Of course, there are places like standing stones and, and holy wells and other things that have been modified by human activity. Places where some, something of the earth comes out and one can immediately encounter what's there and interact with it. And so an eldritch place could be a tree, it could be a pond, a lake, it could be a river, it could be a cave, uh, and they've all got different kinds of qualities. It could be a confluence of two rivers. There are all sorts of hidden places within woodlands and hedgerows uh, and places where you suddenly come across something which is unexpected. What kinds of experiences might people have in these places? Well, you could have a sudden experience of some kind of altered consciousness. You could encounter some something or other. Maybe an animal might come and look at you. Now, an example is some time back, I was out walking in the country near where I live, and I was walking down some very little used tracks and paths, and a place where there's a vast bramble, I mean, 20 feet wide and so on. And I kind of went round this bramble to try and keep going on the path. And suddenly there out came a silver fox and looked at me and just stood there looking at this silver fox for about two minutes. And it suddenly it turned around and walked off. And so that is a kind of ostentum of something of the natural world or of a... You don't actually interpret it as being something unless you intellectualise it. And sometimes you might see something which, which could be uh, something supernatural or otherworldly there, or you feel there's some presence there that you don't know what it is. It's that kind of stopping your normal direct walking and going along in a normal kind of way, and suddenly something happens and it brings you up. It stops you, and you're then put into another state of consciousness, I think. That's probably it. You've written about about how analysis, um, especially if we're talking about maybe like the scientific approach to the material world, has a counterproductive effect in terms of spiritual experience of a place. Does that, does that make sense? Am I... Uh, I, think, I think what it is, is if you go out and look for it, you don't find it. Mm. Um, you're looking for something and you try too hard and you don't find it because you're not in the right receptive state of mind to, to experience it. How do you find, I guess, the sweet spot between awareness and, and um, trance state in order to encounter these places? <laughs> well, it's not necessarily trance. It's, yeah. it's, it's more like if you're doing something, if, if you're skilled at doing anything and you concentrate to the point where you have lost your self-awareness in what you're doing, mm -hmm. you'll have your self-awareness and suddenly you'll be out of self-awareness and in an eldritch state. They used to call it an eerie state back in, in, in former times. Eerie, the word, isn't used anymore, hardly. Like Strindberg, where he had his diary and there was all this... When this spiritual state came, he, I know he put stars on the diary or something like that, that he'd gone into this other state. And Lewis Carroll mentioned it in, in Sylvian Bruno when he calls it an eerie state and he refers to esoteric Buddhism in it in a note. That's one of Carroll's books that hardly anybody ever reads. Um, but, but it's kind of a, it's got a sort of supernatural thing where the fairies appear and this kind of stuff. But they're not fairies in the, in the contemporary sort of post-Disney Tinkerbell type era. They're fairies in otherworldly beings in their fullness that, that appear at some point and interact with people. Mm -hmm. 
How do these states of consciousness intersect with, with the idea of place? Well, there are places where clearly over millennia things have happened and people have gone there and experienced something like the same sort of thing. I mean, I'll give an example in, in from Celtic tradition where some of these holy men who later called saints decided they'd go and see where they build their shrine or their or their cell to pray in or whatever. And they'd be given something in a dream, maybe, and they've got to walk towards the south until they see a white deer. And then at that point, they will found their church. Uh, there's a place called Mockross in Wales where a guy did that, and he had to find a wild pig. And then he built it where the wild pig was. And so these animals appeared, and then they're sort of like, they may be real animals, but they may have been put there by the other world, or they may actually be supernatural beasts that just appear. Who can tell? There's actually, I was reading about Holy Walls when I was at the National Folklore Collection yes. in Ireland. And there's one story about this is one, yeah, a fellow had a dream yeah. that he was going to be cured of his blindness at this one well that was, that had a strawberry calf next to it. Or yes. So he had walked, walked for weeks, I think, until he found, found a well that happened. Someone told him reportedly, because he had to, we're well, not yeah. asking everyone, of course, because he can't see um, <laughs> whether there's a cow standing above this yeah. well. And he did, but yeah, so it's, uh, Durham Cathedral's like that. They've got yeah. a carving on the side, the Dun Cow of Durham, where they were going to build this place, and they, and they, they decided that oh, they had to go where it was a Dun Cow. It's always a particular colour. That's the interesting thing, and it's the old score, the old style of colours, as you say, strawberry. You know, it's these like it's all that tradition of Irish colours that are in the Ogham and that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. and you still get that with some old pub signs that haven't been changed. And then it's, of course, you know, it's been sent as a messenger and they would say, oh, God has sent it or whatever. But then, of course, that's not part of the orthodox Christian view of the world that God would send an animal as, a, as an indicator of where a church should be built. And that's really more eldritch, more pagan than that. And there's another one in, in Alsace, this amazing place at uh, Andlau, where the Empress Richeldis, she was wife of the Holy Roman Emperor. And she was somehow out in the country like they are and saw this she-bear with a cub. And that was the indication she should found this huge monastery there. And then there's the she-bear carving on the building still. This is more than a thousand years ago. And when you go in the crypt, you can pick up a, a hatch and put your hand down and touch the rock where the bear was. That's Eldritch. I mean, it's incorporated within sort of early Christian stuff prior to Christianity becoming more focused on belief rather than experience, I think. Mm -hmm. In your writing, particularly in Eldritch World, you talk about the elder faith, and I'm wondering how you'd, how you'd Well, the elder faith it. I see as the sort of ancient indigenous religion anywhere, or not religion, the word religio meaning bound up, it's not the same, it's not religion, it's, it's practical, it's not to do with belief. I mean, one of the problems is belief, um, and which, which arose at a certain point in history and, and perverted things, basically. Now, what it is, I mean, elder faith in a functional sense would mean what is called paganism, heathenism, something that went in, say, in this country on this piece of ground here prior to the arrival of Christian religion. Because when the Romans were here, of course it did suppressed a lot of stuff but the religion was incorporated into their own religion there was the interpretatio romana say at, at bath for instance there was the god sulis who was the god of the holy hot springs there and they say oh what's this god oh well she must be 
version of Minerva. So they call her Sulis Minerva. So, and it's like that. And so the Roman is just incorporated and given another name. And, you know, we've got the older faith still here. We've got the days of the week, for instance. They've got the old Germanic names, you know. We're, you know, we're here on the day of Woden, Woden's Day, Wednesday. And, um, and so those, those things still exist sort of underneath or embedded deeply within. And so the older faith existed as various kinds of folk practices, things that you couldn't get rid of. I mean, obviously, it's sort of sometimes, again, the Christian religion took over and then incorporated things into them that they would say, oh, you've got something like St. Clement Church up there and St. Clement very much in a kind of Norse thing. And St. Clement is a smith. So Thor with a hammer, smith. You've got hammer gods all over the place. You've got Shango in, in West Africa and, and the hammer being the primal instrument of culture by hammer in hand all arts do stand and so then St Clement takes over and so then people are still performing things which would have been done to Thor gradually it fades but then some of those things of Thor still go on and so that's what Elder Faith is to tell me something about Toadmanry, the English rural fraternity, whose members were reported to have magical abilities given to them by the devil, including mastery over horses. Initiation into the Toadmen included an elaborate preparation of a particular toad bone, which must be carried on the person at all times. Nigel explained to me the method for acquiring the toad bone. Yeah, well, toad bone is... I mean, it goes back to Pliny, the whole thing about the toad and the toad's bones and things. It's very curious what the transmission of this is. But it wasn't written much about because it was secret and it was considered to be witchcraft and, you know, you got in big trouble if you people knew you were doing stuff like this. And basically, it's getting hold of a toad and then you kill it in some kind of unpleasant way. And um, you have to get a specific toad. And people have commented on it. Imagine that it's a certain species of toad, the natterjack, which is a toad that's got a yellow stripe and it's extremely rare, it's almost extinct now. But from the accounts I've read and talked to people as well, who were the old codgers, when I wasn't an old codger, who told me about these things, um, that it was, it was the way the toad behaved rather than in any particular species. It's supposed to be a toad with a star on its back in cotton, for instance, and I've never seen a toad with a star on its back. So it seems to be the toad, you've got to recognise it's that toad by some eldritch kind of ostenta-type means. And then you get this toad and then you kill it. But you can't kill it, you're not allowed to kill it directly. You have to do it to death, which is an interesting thing because it's almost like from a legal position like old English law about not murdering somebody of having the banner of the death blow. But if there isn't a death blow, then... Or, or, you know, you do something like ill-treat somebody and then they die, they've been done to death. And then you bury it somewhere where it's going to rot, especially if you can get in a place where ants are and the ants will eat it. You get the bones out, you dig them up, and then you take them to a north-flowing river, a stream, and you throw them in, disarticulate them, and they're defleshed. And then one of the bones will appear to float upstream. 
Well, this is actually a hip bone. It's a sort of a shape like a key. And when it goes into the water, it spins and the other bones wash away and that stays in one place. And then you use that bone, you've got the bone, and then you carry the bone with you. And it gives you special powers. It gives men the power over horses. Um, it gives men the power over women. It gives women the power over men, etc., etc. You can become invisible. You can enter anywhere. No door is ever closed to a toad man. You can open doors that are locked. So it's kind of fearsome thing and then you know, sometimes it uh, backfires on people and, and they end up in a bad way but what was it one other thing oh yeah very interesting i never read about it anywhere in folklore but in john lee hooker's song groundhog blues he's going to kill the dirty groundhog you know there's a low down dog a dirty groundhog rooting around my back door if i catch him there rooting he won't root there no more so in it he says, I'll get some toad frog's hips, mix them up together, mix them up good, mix them up together, kill that dirty groundhog. So he is using, and they're like the hip bone of a toad. And, and in the United States, I don't know about Canada, a toad frog is what a toad is called. A toad's a kind of frog. Yeah. It's called a toad here and a frog's a different thing, but it's called a toad frog, in, at least in African-American expressions. Yeah. And so he's using... In his song, which was probably written in 1949, or it may, may go back, maybe an older song. I don't know if Hooker actually wrote that song. But uh, he's talking about using toad bones to somehow curse or get rid of the groundhog. Do you have a toad bone? Of course. <laughs> did you make it yourself? Well, I didn't make it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> did you, uh, did you yeah. process it yourself? Of course. To the oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. You can't, you can't write about these things and not, not be a practitioner, can you? Give me some toad frog tip. I'm gonna, gonna put it all together. I'm gonna, gonna mix it up together. I'm gonna, gonna whip it all up good. I'm gonna, gonna kill that old dirty groundhog. I bet you my bottom dollar, then man, he won't rule. What is it about toads that makes a piece of them... People consider that they were... Well, there's several things. A toad was supposed to have a jewel in its head, a toadstone, which was a magical thing, almost like the Philosopher's Stone. And it's mentioned in Shakespeare. I can't remember where it is in Shakespeare. People were so frightened of toads that, that anybody that would pick up a toad or do something with a toad was considered to be either magical or insane. And they give you warts. Because they give you warts. And they are poisonous. Mm -hmm. And they, they absorb the poison from the earth. That's a Finland thing. They actually lie on the earth and they suck the poison into themselves. They accumulate poison from the earth. That's a local folklore thing. And uh, people wouldn't touch a toad. They'd pick them up with tongs and throw them in the fire if they, one came in the house and things like that. Back in the 18th, 19th centuries. And, and the thing is about them, they've also, they're a bit humanoid. Yeah, I was just thinking that. And they were used as ex-votos in South Germany. Wax ones were made of, for something. I think they were connected with a womb in South Germany. I think women who had womb problems would make a wax toad and then put it in the shrine of Our Lady or something like that in Bavaria. And then in Friesland, they had tomb markers that were made of wood and 18th, 19th century ones, and some of them in the shape of a toad. On a, on a tomb. But I haven't come across toadmanry anywhere else apart from this British thing. Some people said that when they, when they did the 
toad bone in the river. They heard all these noises, like steam engines, like traction engines, because they were trying to describe kind of the loudest noise they knew from in the 19th century, which is something like a locomotive, you see. <laughs> if they weren't in an industrial place, you know. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes it looks like somebody was sent, maybe a horseman would be sent to do it as, a, as an initiatory thing. You know, just like people initiating in a gangs have to commit a crime or something or they have to go and murder somebody. That sort of thing, so that they're bound to their comrades by this transgressive act. But it's, it's one of these things, I mean, women did it as well, toad women. They were considered witches, usually. Toad witches. And toads are still associated with witches. Right, because they're supposed to turn people into toads. Turn people into... I remember, I remember that when there was a teen witch craze about 15 years ago, I remember going into a bookshop and looking at it just out of interest and opening it up and it said, how to turn your boyfriend into a toad. And I thought, this is not very pleasant. This is black magic. <laughs> the, old, the old magical tradition of the country that I know is that you can conduct something that is justifiable, which is, let, what say, justice, if you like. Mm -hmm. Somebody has done something bad to you, you and get one back on them kind of thing. But the idea of actually just doing something for malicious purposes, that is black magic. I mean, that's what, that's what they always uh, persecuted people for, for witchcraft, because mm -hmm. there was the idea that these, this woman had deliberately caused a ship to sink at sea by boiling eggs in a bucket or something, you know, and... And then that's the sort of malicious thing which you do for no good reason. Well, and it's just too bad that, like, if you're going to have a simplification of magic or witchcraft in popular culture, that it would be something so base and, like, depressing as... <laughs> yeah, no, it's not love. It's not, not, not how to get a boyfriend to love you and stay with you or something, yeah. or, or how to, you know, how to win the lottery or something. Maybe know? it thought it was being feminist or something. I don't know. Oh, well, I don't know what it was. It was... I mean, I suppose it was about the time Harry Potter was becoming famous. Right. And that really doesn't have any real magic in it. Yeah, let's talk about Harry Potter. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything libelous, am I? I, I you think... get prosecuted by, by J.K. Rowling. Well, what do you think it is about Harry Potter that's, that's not... I think this is a good distinction for some people. What, what's wrong with Harry Potter magic? Well, nothing wrong with Harry Potter as a story. I mean, it's oh, a no, typical no. kind of, you know, school saga, isn't it? There's been lots of those kind of stories in the past, you know. Well, no, I mean, it just isn't consistent. It isn't consistent. If people were using those kinds of powers, other people would have to try and stop them. It would be like in the belief system of the 19th century, where there's people thought there were some bad witches trying to do things, and then they go to a cunning man to, to take the spell off and this kind of stuff. And so there would be lots of counter magic. It, it doesn't have the sort of salutary tale of the sorcerer's apprentice, where the apprentice does this stuff, and then always terrible stuff occurs, you know. And, and there's a wonderful drawing by John Batten, I don't know if you've ever seen that, from Irish fairy tales. And, you know, and he's, he's reading this thing out, and this terrifying black demon with huge wings is just appearing in front of this young lad who's reading this book out, you see. And so, you know, you don't play around with it. And that's, that's what I would see. And, you know, it seems to suddenly, so, oh, we've, oh, we've called up a griffin. Oh, all right, then. Delightful. You know, I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, not very much fun, would it be? It would kill you, and that's the end. It's a lot more like, you know, Ursula Le Guin's book, A Wizard of Earthsea. Yes. Sort of, you could say that maybe J.K. Rowling was inspired by that book. Seems to have a much more realistic view well, of consequences. Well, magic, magic is is. It, you know, I don't believe it works, or don't believe it works. It's psychological, whatever you like, or it's it's tapping into psychic energy or subtle energies. 
and either it works or it doesn't. And it might work for some people and not for others because you've always got a bad practitioner, you've always got the person that you hand, hand the guitar to and can't play. And also, I would say the main criticism I would have of it is that astrology is a fundamental thing in Western magic. Astrology is the basis of it, almost. And whether it's just like the connections between the planets and the metals and the colours and that, or whether it is actually, you know, chronomantic, that doing something at the right time, electing the right time, or you find the person has got a particular horoscope and that gives them a particular abilities and, and so on. You know, the horoscope of Brexit is dire, it's disastrous. It shows the astrologers weren't working there. But that's what I would say. I would say that it doesn't tap in. If you want to look at Western magic, Agrippa was the man who wrote the book. But Agrippa's books on magic are like a graduate course in magic. I mean, they're just everything you can think of. And, you know, it came from a sort of Christian direction as well, because the magicians in late medieval Germany were kind of, a lot of them were monks and so on, like Tritamius and uh, Albertus Magnus and so on. We've got astrology in it, you've got numerology in it, you've got all those divinatory arts. There's no divination in there. And so you can't find the right time to do something in any of it. And it's to do with time. Time is so important. You know, keeping up the day... The whole idea that you do something on a particular day. I mean, we still have the days, you know, they will be celebrating Halloween, won't they? Christmas, New Year, all those days. And there are other days, and they've got the right thing to do at certain times. It's not based on a kind of framework of the cycle of the year or place, direction. You know, it's very important. You think what direction you're facing now and this kind of thing. Well, and, and Hogwarts is like a no place. It's, it's a, a no place. place. There's, no, there's no location. No. It's a non-place, and, and in the movies, they filmed it in three different places. So it's it's lacking context. Yeah, no, I don't want to bound bad mouth. No, 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 but I think it's because really I mean, interesting. I mean, it's you know, um, from a point of view of a of a novel or a series of novels, it's an incredible success, isn't it? So, so a lot of people love it, don't they? But I think it's really important to think about how magic is represented and how it shapes the public perception of the supernatural or human yes. powers or the, how the will operates in the world. Well, and of course, the will, that's the other thing. I mean, you've got, like, as you say, the will. I mean, that was Alistair Crowley and all that kind of thing. Love is the law, love under will and all that kind of stuff. Or Nietzsche and the will and, the, and all that kind of idea, the triumph of the will and that you can do something by willpower. Mm -hmm. and that's not there, is it? In that uh, means of cultivating the willpower. Mm -hmm. You have to cultivate it. It's like if you're a, a lad in the football academy, you have to do all the exercises and build your body up to play football. And, and, or a musician, you know, you start playing scales or whatever. And there's none of that in there, is there? There's none of that basic stuff. They have somebody come along and give a lecture on magic mirrors or something. And, and you know, But it's not like that. Education doesn't work like that. It's not even got an understanding of education from a basic point of view up to being masterhood. It's very shallow in that respect. And you see these things where, oh, this is a wand and a wand. Well, normally, if you've got that kind of wand that they're using, that's not a sort of a high magic wand. It's a sort of wand like a, would be in the form of witchcraft. You make your own. You've got to make your own. And then you've got to cut it from a particular tree at a particular time of day, a particular planetary hour, a particular time of year. You know, you think, oh, well, we're going to cut it when the sap is rising, when the sap is falling, and we cut it in the winter. You know, got the planetary hours, for instance. That's another thing that's absolutely there within alchemy and in divination. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing about it, 
with divination, for instance, is you've got it where, where if the weather or something happens, then you don't do the divination that day. Like in geomantic divination, which is by signs, by dots, and not the same as geomancy of, of the landscape where you put buildings in a particular place like feng shui or that kind of thing, Vastu Vidya. If, for instance, Rubias, which means red blood, Mars, war, fighting violence, comes up at a particular point in divination, you, you abandon the divination for the day and don't do it. get a divination result and then you don't obey it something's going to happen to you i was once in a kind of new age place in america doing a week's work it's in california doing a week's sort of talks on geomancy and stuff and other people they're doing and they wanted to walk in what they called the desert they said oh we're going to walk in the desert yeah i'm walking the desert great okay don't watch out for the scorpions and somebody there who was a runic author who i won't name he said, oh, Nigel, do a divination. Here's a bag of runes. So these runes are out. Oh, no. Oh, no. This is... Some disaster is going to ensue, you see. I'm not coming with you. <laughs> so then, then hours passed, I did something else, you know, and then I came back and... Oh, 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 so-and-so. Oh, what's the matter with him? He fell down a... Whatever, whatever the Spanish word is for a hole in the ground in that part of America and and they said oh he, he's broken his arm they they didn't take it seriously they didn't it was a, it was like a kind of oh let's have a divination mm-hmm. well you've got to take if you don't take it seriously you know you call up a griffin and he eats you mm-hmm. I mean, it's like if you play a game then you know you start playing games with dangerous things and then you're going to be in trouble you just don't ask if you don't want to know. Don't ask if you don't want to know. <laughs> no, many, many years ago, I, I did some divinations about something and, and, and the same thing came up three times and I ignored it and there was a terrible consequence for it. So, I mean, the point is this, that, that that's not sensible. And that's what they used to do in the past. It's all this whole folklore, ostenta and things that appear. You're like, they always said that the quarrymen of Portland, where they make, they've got this stone, they... They still quarry it there. It's got this amazing quality. St. Paul's Cathedral and places like that are built from this, this stone. And the quarrymen, the quarrymen were on their way to work and they saw a whole number of, of um, certain things. They'd just pack it in and go and not work. And the same thing happened in the West Midlands and the coal miners. They had the seven deadly signs. And if the seven deadly signs turned up, one of the seven deadly signs, they wouldn't go to work. Because if they went to work, they might die in the mine. Yeah, considered awful superstition that you saw something or other and you didn't go. But you know, that's it. And that's 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 eldritch in the sense that your things appear in the world and you know what they and what they mean. And divination just takes those and tarot or you know, all these kind of divination cards where you've got a picture of a horse or a cat or a dog or a bus or something. And, and 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 they've got a meaning. What what does what a bus means? You're going on a journey, you know, or something. But in the actual world, all the other things they all have this kind of meaning. And so you think, why did why did that fox come out and look at me, or or something? And you have these kinds of meanings. 
And so that's divination as well. You can go out and look for ostenta. And I developed a, a form of meditation which was based on the runes. And I used to teach it years ago under the way of the eight winds is what I called it, Der Weg der Achtschwinder in German. And I'm doing this kind of stuff about eldritch world but of ostenta and things like that. And you go somewhere and you look at it and say, you know, what's, what's this? I found it very valuable to do a divination where you, you've got to know the runes, of course. You go through all the runes in order and you look for them as you're going along. You can be riding on a bus and looking at for them or you could be walking about. And then you find one you can't find. And then you go on and find the next one, and then you come back and see if you can find that one. And if you can't find that one, that one is the is the message to you. So I've never published that one, but um, it does work. It's very interesting. I really like the idea of finding the runes in the landscape. The runes in the landscape, yes. I mean, you can do something like you see a birch tree, and then that's the Bjork rune, Birkana. But it can be other things. You can see the shape of the thing, or you can see something which is, you know, like we've got Lago here, Laukas, if you want the old Germanic form of it, and which is the flowing water. You know, we've got that here. And then the duck. Well, the duck is a bird which can go underwater, isn't it? It can duck. It can duck. What does a heron mean? I know nothing about heron, heron symbolism. Well, we've seen one today. Well, heron is like a crane. A crane, the symbolism of the crane in in medieval Baroque symbology is watchfulness. And the crane was supposed to be like a watchbird and it held a stone in its one leg and they showed it performed and then dropped the stone when it saw something. I mean, I don't know what that is. I've seen it in, in Baroque paintings and things. The watchfulness, that's what it represents. It's a vigil, vigilant beast. See, that's not in any of those sort of magical storybooks, is it? You don't have the teaching on that kind of stuff about the meaning of birds and animals. In folklore, there's a lot of animal meaning. Oh, absolutely, yes. It's, it's all there, yes. There's, there's tomes and tomes on, or yeah, in yeah. oral tradition. Anyway, and you've got all that stuff. Of, of You go back into the into the Etruscan discipline of augury by yeah. birds and, you know, ex arvibus, and you've got you know, the whole thing of the foundation of Rome with, with Romulus and Remus and then seeing the birds and one getting precedence over the other. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Hugin the Moon and the Ravens of Odin and all those kinds of things and and the ravens that they have at the Tower of London. And ravens are highly intelligent. They're they're kind of intelligence of more than a dog. They're better than a dog. And then there's the old tradition of the ravens used to be able to speak. Yeah. You can teach a raven to speak. Mm-hmm. And in Ireland they said that the ravens stopped speaking when the Irish language went out. Now what I think was that in ancient times people kept ravens and spoke to them in Irish. And then the ravens flew out to other ravens and spoke to them in Irish, and the other ravens picked it up from them, and the ravens were flying around speaking Irish. <laughs> and eventually, when the English language overwhelmed it, then the, gradually the ravens lost it. And that's my theory, unpublished. It's <laughs> <laughs> a wonderful theory. And that's the whole thing of Hugin and Munin, you know, the ravens can tell you things. Well, who knows whether you can teach some bird to actually tell you what they've seen. Mm-hmm. Parrots, whatever. I mean, it's parrots and ravens, crows, they're corvids. I mean, ravens, you know, jackdaws, those kind of birds. 
I like the idea that parrots have secrets, though. There's, I mean, there's a parrot in a ballad of yeah. where the, this woman murders a man who's trying to murder her. Oh, and, yes, you know, yes. And then she has she spends a few a number of verses trying to convince the parrot not to. Oh, yes, I know that one. Yeah, I can't remember. Don't brittle, don't brattle, my pretty Polly. Don't tell no tales of me. And thy cage shall be made of the glittering gold. The door of the best ivory. Why shoutest so loud, my pretty Polly? So loud and so early, Polly. Oh, the cat has climbed up in the window so high, and I fear that he will have me. Oh, they're great, those songs. They're, they're kind of eldritch in a sense, aren't they? They're, they've got a, a connection into, into the animal kingdom. I mean, that's the thing, they're sort of... I don't know theory about the witch hunters, that the witch hunters were all men back in the 1600s. They were all men who were kind of from an upper class and, and they didn't deal with the animals. They would have ridden on horses, but the ostlers and the people would have got the horses ready for them and they'd have just got on the horse and ridden it. And they didn't deal with other animals. They didn't herd cattle. They didn't have dogs. They didn't go hunting with dogs or any of this stuff. Then they saw this woman who's got a cat and she sends it to the next door neighbour to ask the next door neighbour to come around. And, um, and then, oh, this is witchcraft, it's a familiar. Mm-hmm. But you know, in, there's a tradition of training cats in Russia. Mm-hmm. have cat circuses in Russia. You can train cats to do all kinds of stuff, but the tradition of training cats here is lost. I mean, it's the idea of horse whispering, too. Or if, well, you're that... paying, if you're paying attention, you can understand That's right. animals. That's part, of the same, uh, that's part of the same thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, my cat, when I had a cat, used to come and sit on me. And it would breathe into my nostrils, and I'd breathe in. And it was doing that, and it communicated with this cat. <laughs> That's wonderful. I mean, it's like, yeah, well, there we are. It's another, another living being, you know. <laughs> and it, it recognised the sound of a car and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, they're not stupid. That is probably the greatest tragedy of modernity, is, is the separation from everyday contact with animals. Mm-hmm. Human contact with the natural world with the natural world i think that that's like the uh, the essence of what we think of as magic is 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 in that point of contact i think isn't it yes it is (laughs) i mean riding a bicycle is quite different from riding a horse you have to really want to get somewhere if you're going to master a being that is four times as big as you. yes i know but yeah yeah i mean handling a horse pulling a vehicle is a very interesting experience I could play a tune on the Oh, that's mouthful. a great idea. A oh, bit. the duck is back. Hello, duck. Oh, well, I'll feed the duck. I'll give the duck a bit of flappy. Yeah. So the ducks hear the cracking, Of all the horses in the merry green wood, 
The bobtail mare bears the bell away Of all the horses in the merry green wood The bobtail mare bears the bell away With a hey, with a re, with a ho, with a g And the bobtail mare bears the bell away With a hey, with a re, with a ho, with a g And the bobtail mare bears the bell away The song you just heard the bobtail mare, references the old practice of sending one's mare out into the woods to mate with wild stallions. It was traditionally sung at the harvest feast. If you'd like to purchase one of Nigel Pennock's books, many of them can be found on the website of his main publisher, Inner Traditions. He recently released a book titled Witchcraft and Secret Societies of Rural England, and in a few weeks there will be an American release of his book, Eldritch World, from publisher Arcana Europa. Nigel has another book to be released this fall called Operative Witchcraft. I've linked to some of the places you can find Nigel Pennock's books in the show notes, and I've also included the image he mentioned of the Sorcerer's Apprentice. His music can also be found on YouTube. Fair Folk is produced by me, Danica Boyce. If you want to hear even more episodes, go to patreon.com slash fairfolkcast to get the bonus Fair Folk Almanac another episode I release monthly, only for my Patreon subscribers. You can also find me on Instagram at danica.child. Thank you for listening to Fair Folk, and thank you to Sylvia Woods for providing the intro theme, her song Forest March. If you like Fair Folk, please share it with your friends and rate it positively on iTunes. It makes a big difference to my ability to continue producing the podcast. Thank you very much, and I'll talk to you soon.